0: Hear the word of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say... By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. But He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. As you already know, Peter's writing to several churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. He's writing to a people who have been persecuted. He's writing to a people knowing that his last days, his last days, are upon him. Nero is going to martyr him shortly. This letter, 2 Peter, is more of a a polemic letter than a pastoral as he defends against false teachers that have corrupted and infiltrated the church. In chapter 1, Peter declares that our salvation is the perfect life. Is the perfect life, the atoning death of Jesus, that we could never stand in the presence of a holy God, reconciled, forgiven, apart from Jesus. And if our salvation, he says, is genuine, transformation will take place. Transf- transformation will take place. That's why he tells us we are saved by the Gospel, but we are also transformed by the Gospel. He writes in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 19, I love this verse, For whoever lacks these qualities, these transforming qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed by his former sins. It is the gospel that transforms us. And at the end of chapter 1, Peter begins to attack these false teachers that have infiltrated the church, and he begins with the truth. It's a wise man and woman who, who know the truth, who love the truth, so that when falsehood comes, they can see it for what it is. Peter says, even though I'm an eyewitness of this this unveiling of the intrinsic glory of Christ veiled, uh, opened up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is the Word of God, he says, that is even more sure than what he experienced. Remember, the New Testament was not written yet. And then in chapter 2, we looked at in the past week or two, that Peter's in rare form and he, he, with with precision and with with harsh language, begins to uh, reveal to us the disparaging character and the destruction of these false teachers. And, you know, we said last week that sometimes, as a good dad, as a good pastor, as someone who loves others, you have to shoot the wolves. You've got to stick that hot poker in the eye of those false teachers. And he just lays it out. It's because Peter loves Jesus. Jesus spoke that way, Matthew 23. Jesus, excuse me, Peter loves Jesus and loves Jesus' people, the church, and finds it necessary to point out the false teachers. And he nails them to the wall in chapter 2. He says they secretly introduced destructive heresies. They even deny the one, Jesus, who bought them with his life. Peter says they are arrogant, they are immoral, they are sensual, they are adulterers, they are greedy, they are slanderers, they are selfish, and he says they are accursed children. Martin Luther said, With the wolves you cannot be too severe, with the weak sheep you cannot be too gentle. And we ended last week, if you remember, in chapter two, verse 22, where he concludes his attack on false teachers, uh, bringing up two proverbs. One's a biblical proverb, and uh, I think it's in proverb 29, I believe. And then the other one was extra biblical when he talks about the dogs uh, returning to his vomit, the pig returning to the mud. And the point that he makes out that he makes at concluding in chapter two is that dogs are characteristically returning to their vomit. Pigs, no matter how much you clean them, they're going to return to the mud. There's still a dog. there's still a pig. And his point is simple. There are, there are false teachers in the church that have been baptized, that have, that have been part of the church. They look like Christians. They were acting like Christians. And yet when all is said and done and time has gone on, they return right back to what they were, false teachers. 1 John 2.19 says, John writing saying that there were some that were among us. They were hanging out with us. They looked like us. And then they went out from us to show us that they never really were part of us. They never received a new heart, a new life, and they returned to their old way. That brings us to chapter 3. Peter moves to a slightly different tone. It's not so much they and them, look at them, and he's pointing fingers at the false teachers. In chapter 3, he kind of softens his tone and he talks about you. Look at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Slightly changed tone. He's he's trying to encourage the saints here to stand firm on the the promise of God and to live in the moment knowing that what God has promised, this is for us, what God has promised, He will do. And Peter gets to the heart of the issue here in chapter 3. He brings together the scoffing, the mocking of the false teachers and their lifestyle that comes from their beliefs, their lifestyle that comes from their beliefs, which is lustful and greedy. They claim to know Jesus, and yet they won't submit to Him as Lord. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, I'll give you three things, three headings, if you're taking notes, uh, that we're going, to, we're going to see. Number one, Peter tells the Beloved to, 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 to live wisely, uh, to remember the promise. Living wisely, remembering the promise. And we'll look at that a little closely. Also, he points out that the heretics, the scoffers, are living lustfully because they deny the promise. And finally, Peter will go back to the beloved and tell him, listen, live patiently. And your responsibility now is to live patiently proclaiming the promise of his coming. So those are the three headings that we're going to be looking at our text this morning. Verse 1. This is now the second letter, he says, that I'm writing to you. Some people believe he's returning to 1 Peter. I do. Some people think maybe it was written to a different people. It was still the second letter. I, think, I take it for what it means. And he's writing a second letter. 1 Peter, now 2 Peter. Yeah, I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What Peter is doing, Peter is reminding them, reminding us, of things that we regularly forget. It's this. What you believe, not only about God in the present, and what you think, not only about God in the present, but what you think of the coming day of the judgment of God on that last day, determines how you live your life today. That is why he says, I want to remind you uh, and, uh, of recalling the Old Testament prophets. I want to remind you of, of what the commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things that he spoke. I want to remind you of the New Testament writers, the apostles, on, on the communication of the Word of God. And he wants believers to, to cultivate, to be able to stir up, he says, a sincere mind. Literally means wholesome thinking. You see, the heretics were scoffers, they were scoffering and they were denying God's providence in history and they were not only believing that lie, but that lie was then then transferred into the way in which they lived. And here's the big picture. What you think and believe affects the way you live today. Now I mentioned this uh, a couple of uh, months back and I just want to mention it again. It's a great illustration to to lock into your brain and to remind you of what Peter is saying. Okay? Here's the illustration. So you could you could see the connection. What we believe in the future changes today. Two men get on a plane. One man gets goes on the plane. The stewardess hands him a parachute. Put this on. The man puts it on. Doesn't really understand. Puts it on anyway. People are looking at him like he's crazy. Like if a dude walks on the plane wearing a parachute, you think he's nuts. He gets puts the, and he sits down. It's awkward. It's heavy. It's cumbersome. Everybody's laughing at him, looking at him like, that's crazy. What's he doing? And he, as time goes on, he's getting angrier and angrier. People are making more and more fun of him, scoffing. Finally, he thinks, you know what? There's nothing wrong. He takes off the parachute he throws it to the ground. Same man, same place, same airplane, gets on the airplane and says, and the stewardess says, put this on because about four hours from now, we'll be at 25,000 feet and the plane's going to crash. You're going to need this parachute to survive. He knows what the future holds. He'll get on, and people he'll be he'll be like, "This is a pain," but that's cool. He'll I, I, find a way to get comfortable, won't he? People will laugh at him and mock at him, and he won't think nothing of it, because he knows what they don't know. That at 25,000 feet, the plane is going down, and he's going to be safe. See, the future changes today. If you were given a job, a menial job of putting bulbs in a light in a box, light bulbs in a box all day long for fifty hours a week and promised twenty dollars at the end of the week, it would be very different if you did the same job at the same place and were given twenty thousand at the end of the week. See what what the end is determines and changes and influences your behavior in the present. Peter writes, Beloved, remember What the Old Testament prophets have said. Remember the Scriptures. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what the Apostles said. I I want to stir your mind up. It involves more than than a mental assent. When the Bible talks about reminding you of something, it's not just cognitive. It's not just mental. It is meant to change you. It is meant to, to make... You think and to change the way you respond to situations and to life in general. We do communion here on a, on a monthly basis, sometimes twice a month. If you're a Christian, I don't think you walk in here and say, Oh, the bread, what is that for? And the cup, I don't remember. We don't do it to jar your memory. We do it because we gather, and it's spiritual. It's a time of reflection. It is time that we can we can hold on to, that we can be changed by remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It, it is it is a time of of spiritual renewal and strength. Thomas Reiner, uh, excuse me, Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary, he hits a nail on the head. He says, In biblical thinking, reminders grip the whole person so that we are possessed again by the gospel and its truth, so that we are energized to live for the glory of God. See, remembering in the Bible is something that you take in, it's something you own, it's something that is meant to change your life. Peter wants God's people to remember his return. To be able to discern spiritual truth because knowing and believing affects the way you live. I've heard it said this way. We are to define our life and live it backwards. We are to say on that day when Jesus returns and I stand before Him, I want to bring Him glory. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's the day that I'm defining my life and now I will live it backwards. Peter says, remember. Remember. Why? Because the scoffers, they were living lustfully. They were denying the promise. And Peter's bringing together the the, the heresy. The scoffing leading to their ungodly lives. Verse 3, knowing this first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Scoffers are going to come in the last days. Now, the last days, just so you know, is not those crazy Prophets, want your money, TBN nuts, that say, God spoke to me, He's coming Thursday at 2, so send me a lot of money so you can miss this or get some sort of blessing. That's not what He means by the last days. In the Bible, the last days is the day that Jesus came, rose from the grave, and the day He's going to return. There will always be scoffers until the coming of Christ. Right? I mean, think about it. You go to work tomorrow, to your school, to your work, to your community, wherever you're going to be, and say, you know, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I did this and that. What did you do? Well, I was at church. We were talking about the coming of Jesus. Oh, really? Yeah, oh yeah, He's coming back, literally. On a cloud. Going to judge the world, reign and rule, and see what they say. Really? I didn't know. That's great. Tell me more. I don't think so. Right? There'll always be scoffers. The word scoffers, or mockers, empikatas, to play with, It it, it means that people take things that are serious, that are of utmost importance, and they play with it. It's no big deal. It's a joke to them. We said that heresy is different than error, remember? Heresy is centered around the the essentials of Christianity, The, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the atoning work of the cross, His virgin birth, His sinless life, Him being fully God and fully man, the essentials. Not just not, not, not things that people get wrong. We all get things wrong. We all say things that are stupid. And what they were doing was they were mocking, they were scoffing, they were playing with the most important things, eternity. Reconciliation with your Creator. And they were making a mockery and they were teaching lies about that which is very important. C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity is a statement which... If false, if false is of no importance and if true, of infinite importance. Infinite importance. And Peter says, the scoffing at the return of Christ and what was the outcome? They were following their sinful desires. Epitumia. Over-desire. They, they, were, they were run off by their own sinful cravings of the flesh. They were living lustfully. They were doing it in three ways. One, in their thinking. Look at verse 4. They will say... They don't say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, that's Abraham and all the Old Testament dudes, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what is their argument? There, there, There has been no divine intervention. I don't see any. God must not be interested in the earth, in the world, or really what I'm doing. So I will live and do as I please. Folks, that's deism. That's God created the heavens and the earth, set it in motion, and said, See ya. You're on your own. I'll set the laws in place, and I want nothing to do with you. You know what that is? That is a character assault on God. God said, Christ was returning. Christ said that you matter. He loves you. He's involved with you. Not a hair upon your head is numbered. All the hairs upon your head is numbered. Not a sparrow falls from the ground apart from his knowledge. It's a mockery. And, and, and let me say this. Maybe you're here and you have questions. That's different. You know, what's, what, why are we here? What is this all about? What is Christi- Christianity all about? Scoffing and inquiring are two different things. If, if you're here and you have real questions and you're seeking to know God better... You're, you want real answers. That's good. We're glad you're here. We'd love to talk with you. Even some good debate. It's different. Scoffing's different than inquiring. What, what the scoffers were doing is they were so arrogant and boastful they were not open up for debate. They didn't want to hear about inquiry. They just wanted to diminish the character of God say He's not even telling the truth and they want to ignore God's Word so that they can live however they want. That, that's what the scoffers were doing. And, you know, as I was studying, as I was preparing this section of Scripture, I was reminded that, you know, Christians, brothers and sisters who love Jesus, who belong to Jesus, who look forward to His coming, we too will stand, not in the judgment day of God, but we will stand, the Bible says, in the judgment seat of Christ. That every Christian at that day, We'll stand before Jesus and give an account of our life. Not for salvation, He already accomplished that. Not so that we could pay for our sins, He already accomplished that. But the Bible says with the knowledge that you have, with the the gifts, talents, and treasures that you have, you're going to be responsible. He says the work that people have have built upon the foundation, He will receive reward if if it passed through the fire. Anyone whose work is burned up will suffer loss... Though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. And I think sometimes we need to think that way. That we make that even though scoffers have an eternal destiny uh, separated from God, but as Christians we need to remember, again, not for our salvation, but we need to remember that we need to be good stewards with our money, with our time, with our talents. And all that God has given us, because God's going to give, we're going to give to account to Jesus someday. But in their thinking, they denied it. And in their ignorance... Look at verse 5. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through the water, by the Word of God. By the Word of God. Verse 5. Okay. In order for the, for the mockers to, 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 to uh, perpetuate the, their corrupted way of thinking and their lifestyle, they have to deliberately, what they know to be true, they have to deliberately suppress the truth. Romans 1 says that, God is, uh, that we suppress the truth by the lie. And what Peter is saying, look, it goes back to creation. It goes way back to creation. It goes way back to nowhere in the flood. And what's so twisted, I think Peter's trying to point out is, what's so twisted about their, their delusion, their deception, is that the very fact that God intervened in creation shows that God does intervene in our life. He's done it before. So the argument is floored, and Peter's like, "Look, reach, open your Bibles. Just just the first page. The first page, you don't have to go very far. Genesis 1. It tells that if God it tells us that if God did not intervene in creation the world would still be without form and void, the darkness would still be over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God would still be hovering over the face of the waters. It was when God spoke into the universe that it came into existence, that dry land came up out of, or came from the waters. So God spoke His Word, His creative agency, and from nothing He creates beauty. Genesis 1, don't have to go very far. And Peter would say, look, creation in itself, shows that God is interested, that God will intervene, and there's no reason to doubt He won't do it again. So why deny His promises? Remember, He's not arguing to atheists. He's arguing with deceptive, false teachers in the church. And Peter's like, if that's not enough, look at the worldwide flood. Verse 6, verse 6. And that, by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. Deluge means flooded. It's actually the word cataclyso. It's inundated. It's completely swallowed up by water. It's where we get our word cataclysm. It's major. The word perish means no longer what it's used for. And what Peter's saying, listen, remember the flood? Remember the only thing the earth was good for while it rained was to float along the top. That's all. Peter had already mentioned earlier that in Noah's day it was just a prequel of his judgment and now he's bringing it back up again and he's saying, listen, the scoffers are no different than the days when Noah and all the people in Noah's day who never saw rain before were scoffing and laughing and living life and saying nothing has changed. Day in, day out, that crazy dude is building that wooden thing and we don't see... That was a hundred and something days. We didn't see no change until they were sucking in water, Right? The flood was a cataclysmic event worldwide that changed the earth. The scoffers deny that truth. The earth was spoken into existence. The scoffers deny that truth as well. No different today. There's no different today. And here's the thing. If God is not a personal creative being who created the universe, right, then there's no judgment. Mock away. But if you're here today and and you acknowledge and you believe that there is a God, He he has created the universe, then to scoff Him and to mock Him of His coming promised judgment is to have no intellectual integrity. It's sort of like The mom who loves to cook and creates a a wonderful dish and meal for their kids and when she puts that on the table, the kids come in and scoff at her and mock at her and and, and laugh at her and she's expected to say, oh, that's okay. Just ridicule me. Scorn me. All I've done for you in love. It really doesn't matter. Mom's going, no, I don't think so. If there's a creative God, to mock the promise of His coming is to mock Him. You can't have it any other way. So it's in their thinking. Okay? It's, it's in their thinking. It's in their ignorance. And look at the foolishness. Look at their foolishness. Verse 7. By the same word, that creative agency of God, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And, and here's the crux of the matter. God intervened at creation. God intervened at the flood. And God will intervene in the future. He's building His case. Right? This happened, this happened, and this will happen. He's storing up, literally treasuring, uh, constantly maintaining it until the final judgment of God. After I graduated um, in 1982 uh, from the Department of Corrections, I was deployed, sent to Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Westchester County. I was two years old when I went, that's why I... Well, when I got there, one of the things about the facility that I saw was what they call the death house. The death house was down by the railroad tracks, and it was this big building, and in it was a place where they, they, they did all the executions. And when I got down there, everything was just about the way it used to be during the time of execution. It's been a long time since we've done those. And, uh, and I'm not arguing here or there. I'm just giving an illustration. You can email me later. Um... And when I went into this building, what I noticed, everything was kind of set up the way it was. There was an officer station in the middle of this building where they kept the prisoners. And in, the, in, that, in that area, the cells were semi-circle. I think there were seven or eight. And the officer would sit and see all seven cells all at once. He'd be able to see everybody from that one location. The first cell, or the last, depending on when you count, but the first cell had a steel bar in the front go in and out, and had a back door. That back door led to a small hallway, my sort of movies, that led to the chair. I know it's kind of morbid. You're thinking, it's Sunday morning, you really have to go there. The point is, they're kept, they're watched, they're guarded, they're not going anywhere until the call for their execution. Until they're called and summoned for their execution. They're being kept, they're being secured, they're being watched, they're waiting. That's what Peter's saying. But where the illustration that I just share with you goes south is we may say, you know what? they deserved it. Peter says that it's being kept for the ungodly. You know, the ungodly is not those that deserve it, in the sense of the murderers, the rapists, the bank robbers. It's for the moral. It's for the upright. To be ungodly does not mean that you are seen as someone who does all those bad things. When the Bible talks about the ungodly, it talks about those who have no reverence for God. You could love your wife, love your kids, go to work, pay your taxes, do all the moral things in this life and be ungodly because you have no treasure in Jesus. You have no love for God. You have no respect and conscious concern about God. It is a fool, says Psalm 53, that says in his heart there is no God. Living lustfully, denying the promises. And finally, living patiently. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. Peter uses the word Lord three times in verses 8 through 10. And what I want to see, the first thing is the patience of the Lord. Look with me at verse 8. But do not... Talking to believers, do not overlook this one fact. Alright? Don't look over this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Peter's reaching back to Psalm 90 verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight, O Lord, are but as yesterday when it comes, when it is past and or as a watch in the night. In other words, what Peter is contrasting is the eternality of God and the span of human life and the contrast between the two. Peter is not saying, Peter is not saying that every day is a thousand years, literally that three years for us is three thousand years for God. That only happens in dog years, right? That's not what he's talking about. God does not look, is what he's saying, at the passing of time as we do. God does see our time, but God transcends time. He's not bound by time. He's not limited by time. He he does not measure it like we do. He's he's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. But we are impatient people, are we not? It seems, as I was reading this and thinking through this, it seems like as years go on and technology builds, we are more and more impatient, right? It wasn't long ago, I'm showing my age, That we were walking around or, or driving around with a quarter looking for a phone booth. And now we got three seconds of no service and we're like, live it. Going down into, oh, I got no service, come back up. Like, what's going on? Right? We send emails. Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Like, it's going to outer space and back and it's taking more than three seconds and we are impatient. Not long ago, I was sitting on an airplane, and it was winter, and they had to de-ice it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, come on. Are you kidding me? Let's get this done. Let's get out of here. Like I'm going on a huge metal thing that's flying through the air, and I'm impatient for 20 minutes as they de-iced the plane. You know, going to a place that would usually take like seven months to walk on a camel, I'm getting there in two hours, but I'm impatient because it's taking too long. Or how about this one? You know, you know. Come on, the photo is taking forever. Like this, this like three photos I'm sharing to someone five thousand miles away and it's taking five seconds to load instead of three. And I'm like want to bang my phone against the against the desk, right? We become impatient. We become impatient. But God, he says, is very patient. We see life in the moment God sees life from eternity. I've heard it said this way, God sees as life as as like a, a, a parade. We are seeing what's going on in the moment. God sees the beginning and the end. And someday God will intervene, Peter said. He will interrupt. He will intervene life and pour out His wrath and pour out His judgment. But He continues to wait, not because He has to. He continues to wait, not because He is late. God continues to wait because He is merciful God's delay does not spring from His unwillingness or His impotence, but His mercy and His patience. God's patience means that every day, brothers and sisters, we wake up and we have an opportunity that day, because of His patience, every day, with the opportunity to live on mission with Him, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ to our communities, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to our friends. Special moments by His grace, special moments, by His patience to speak about His love and His salvation and His redemption to a world so desperately needs it. So, I would say God's slowness should should not be a cause, should be a cause. God's slowness should be a cause for our quickness to proclaim the Gospel. We don't have forever. And if we believe that, if we believe this, we're not going to go back to our house and spend the next four months diagramming exactly how it's going to happen. You've seen all the diagrams. You know, reading all the newspapers that some of these doomsayers, doomsayers, prophets, oh, this one gave alliance with this one and we're trying to figure things out. Listen, we would be imploring our friends, our neighbors, trust Christ, love Jesus. We were looking for ways to be generous and loving and communicating the gospel to our friends and family. Imploring loved ones, turn to Christ. Don't, don't, don't go into eternity without Jesus. That's the patience of God. To compel us, to propel us in mission. Second, look at the heart of the Lord. Verse 9. He is patient, He says, toward you. Talking about the believers. Not wishing that anyone would perish, that all should come to repentance. Now that verse is a highly debated passage of Scripture. Particularly when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the, the election of the saints. Okay? God's sovereign choosing of those who would receive salvation by no work of their own, and then the free will of man and what that means. I'm not going to get into that today. You can say thank you later. Okay? I'm not going to get into that today, but we're going to talk about it this summer. Okay? But let me tell you something that I believe Scripture teaches us that you have to understand to look at that His his patience towards everyone and that He wants all to come. He says, wishing that none should perish, that all should reach repentance. And, And what that means is there's a difference between the will of God in His sovereignty, that He has the right to reign and rule over the world, moving all of history toward His holy good and right purposes, and God's will of desire. There's a difference between God's sovereign will, His decreed will, what will happen, and His desired will. Psalm 19.21, Many are the plans of the mind of men, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Understanding the different wills of God. God's sovereign will, again, means that no matter how much stupidity and sinfulness and rebellion and pain and trials that happen in our lives, God's holy, good, right purposes will be fulfilled. He works all things out for the good. For those who love Him are called according to His purposes. But then God has a defined will. You know it in the moral law. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Love your enemies. Does that always happen? If you say yes, just ask the person next to you. They'll straighten you out. You do not always follow the fine, clear, purposed will of God. Don't do this. It doesn't happen. That's why because God has a will of desire that you and I never sin. It is God's will, it is God's desire that we forgive and love our enemies, but we don't. It is also God's will that we should serve one another. We should love one another. We shouldn't sin, but we do. It is also God's will that none shall perish, but they will. It is also God's will of desire that none will perish, but they will. Peter referred to what God desires, not to that which God ordains. That's what he's talking about. John Calvin said it perfectly. Not willing that any should perish, he says, so wonderful is his love toward mankind that he would have them all to be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost yet some will perish. While God is willing to save man, man is not willing to be saved. Ezekiel tells us, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his sins and live. So God does not take pleasure, God does not take pleasure and God does not desire those to perish, but they will. And that leads me to the second thing I Peter—I think Peter wants us to see. And that is the opportunity that Peter gives us to, to unveil, to kind of move a little bit so we can see the heartbeat of God. This verse of Scripture that's debated over things that maybe, maybe should be debated, maybe shouldn't be, but this verse, we overlook the fact that this is the heart of God. That's his love. That's his care that he desires, that he wishes that none will perish. 2 Timothy. It is God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Love of God for his people, love of God for his creation should propel us to live on mission. Love compels us to say to the lost, to, to those people who don't know Jesus, to plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we see that there's, there's, a, there's more than just the sovereign will, there's the desired will, there's the things that God will get, and there's things that God allows to happen, like us sinning. So we see the, 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 we see the, the, the patience of God, we see the heart of the Lord, and finally, I want to end with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, in the earth and all its works that are done will be exposed. Now, we're going to look at this more in detail next week. What does it mean by dissolving? Verse 13 talks about the new heaven and the new earth. We'll talk about that next week. All I want to do, as we've got a few minutes left, is look at that one phrase, Day of the Lord. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, he's talking about what a day of God, a day of judgment. It refers to Christ coming back again. He'll judge uh, the wicked. He will reign in righteousness. All that has been broken will be restored. Uh, All that is wrong will be made right. And some of you, and and I want you to listen to me here, some of you think about the judgment of God, the wrath poured out on evil and sin, you think to yourself, really? Really? So God is love? And yet God will judge God cares about His people and yet God will pour out His wrath? I'm going to show you in just two minutes that you and I and everyone God created because we are in the Amado Dei created in the image and likeness of God that we have an innate sense of right and wrong justice and judgment and we know that the coming day of God is right and it is good. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. We cringe at the thought of judgment and justice when it refers to us right the fact is we want judgment we want justice we applaud judgment we applaud justice when it's for those people don't we do that
1: we say you know what if
0: if 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 someone had done something really bad we applaud at when they get punished for it but when it comes to us that's a different story the sinners don't like to be judged and the good news is that god even though he will pour out his wrath he's also good and righteous and he has Mercy, And the problem is that you and I need to face this reality that God, who is both a loving God and a God who hates and will judge sin, because God does love. You see, God's judgment and God's justice is tied to and linked to His love. God is grieved over sin. We said this last week, that when He sees humanity trampled on, when He sees His creation abused, He gets angry. Listen to what writer Becky Piper said in her book, Uh, Hope Has Its Reasons. Listen to this, okay? Listen carefully. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it, she says. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, she says, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and the the inflexibility hostile in or to injustice. End quote. See, God does get angry because God loves. God gets angry when His creation is abused and marred and there's rebellion and there's wickedness. And it has a limit. There's a limit. God will judge sin. In fact, all loving persons are, are, are sometimes filled with wrath, not despite of, but because of their love. Friends, if God let injustice go unrestrained, we would take the finger he made, the breath he gave, and curse him. That's what we would do. Mark Dever in the um, in, in Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, in Washington said this, Justice is an obvious expression of goodness. Wrongs righted, vindication, restoration, that which should be being restored, that which shouldn't be being extinguished and removed. The world being put right... Truth winning out, clarity, honesty, lies being revealed, deceptions being ended, quarrels being forever settled, rights finally having might. There's a bracing cleanness to justice. Who can deny it? Nobody here. Deep in our hearts we know that. Deep in our hearts we know that things are broken and that we want healing. Things are wrong, we want to be made right. But folks, let me tell you something about the day of the Lord. It's not just wrath. The day of the Lord is the day of Jesus. We celebrated Father's Day last week, and hopefully it was their day. You guys got home a little pampered a little bit if you're a dad. Maybe you remember a day in your life that was very significant. A wedding, birth of a child. I was recently at a wedding, and and the woman that was getting married, the young girl that was getting married, everybody kind of pampered her on her day. What do you need? What can we do for you? Let it happen on the day? They, They take center place the relationship that you have with your kids, take on a special honor for that day. Don't they? You take a supportive role because it's their day. You see, some of us approaching the day of judgment, the day of Jesus, like that, we rejoice. We rejoice. That's the way. We await His promise coming because we know that when He finally comes, He'll take the center stage. The sinners will be judged and all that is broken will be healed and all that is wrong will be made right. And we long for that. Yet we know in our own hearts that He's coming to judge sinners, yet we are that too. So how do we go from the day of wrath, hiding, running, to the day of rejoicing? The Gospel. You and I can stand on the day of judgment when we... When we embrace the truth that the one who stood in our place on the day of judgment. His name is Jesus. The Bible says in Mark 15, while Jesus hung on the cross on the sixth hour, darkness was over the land until the ninth hour. Three hours. Darkness overtook the cross and the land and representing judgment against evil, sin, and rebellion. And God was saying through that judgment, God was showing that on the cross was the place of our judgment. That's precisely what Jesus was experiencing. What was coming down on Jesus on that day was judgment day. Three hours, 180 minutes that Jesus paid our sin and redeemed us. He's not just an angry God, listen, and a wrathful God, or a weeping God and a loving God. He's both. He's both. He doesn't only judge evil, but He also takes the hell and judgment Himself for us on the cross. Our sin, our folly, our stupidity. And when you know that, not just cognitively, when it changes your heart, shapes your life, in a way that right now Jesus is taking his rightful place at the center of my life, we rejoice in his coming. And how do we get there? Peter says in verse 9. How do we get to that place of the coming wrath to the coming king rejoicing? He says right in verse 9. He does not, God is patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish but that all should get their life in order. No, that's not what it says. Or that they should treat people nicely or go to church. No, that's not what he says. He says he wants no one to perish but everyone to repent. See what he's saying? He is, he is saying it's not the good, it's not the self control it's not the moral. It's not the ones who get their lives together who could stand on the day of judgment. It's those who can't and acknowledge it. It's the one who admits they are not good, they're not able to stand. Those are the ones that can stand on the day of judgment repentance is a change of mind a change of heart a change of will it's a gift that God gives us to those who acknowledge that our main problem in life is our sin centering our lives around me being my own Lord my own Savior and Jesus the coming King and Judge the world will take center stage everything broken will be healed all the rights will be wrong and I, I implore you don't wait till that day turn to Jesus today He bore your sin today He took the judgment you deserve today. Jesus said, whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake and the gospel will not save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, the judgment of God will come. It will either fall on you or you will trust it fell on Jesus. My hope, my prayer is that you trust Jesus. So we're going to respond as the band comes up. And I'm going to ask you one question as we respond. Are you going to sit on the throne of your life today and stand in the judgment of God to come? Or will you repent today and accept the work of Christ on the cross, believing Jesus stood in God's judgment on Himself on your behalf? The mockers deny the coming of Jesus. I implore you in love, Jesus is coming. He will judge the world. Turn from your sin, trust Him. The day will come and He will reign and rule. Will you reign and rule with Him by trusting Him, knowing that you're a sinner and trusting in His work. And I just wanted one last word. If you're a believer here today, I, I hope this stirs you up. Not, not, not guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Okay? I'm saying that we get to join Him on His mission. We get to declare His love and mercy and grace to others. Will you join God today? Will you share the message of reconciliation? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Father, thank You that You sent Your Son to die an atoning death. Judgment poured out on Him so that we can escape the final judgment. Father, we pray as we respond, whatever it is we need to let go of, we let go of, that You would take center in our lives. That, Father, we would recognize this is Your earth, Your day. And, Father, the happiness and joy that we seek is in Christ. We pray, Father, for those who may not know You today, that today as we respond, Your Spirit will open up their heart and they would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. Father, we pray. Spirit, have Your way with us. In Jesus' good name. Amen.